Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Have a listen to this, Jan. Turn out, boys. What's up with our super tonight? The man's mad. Two hours to daybreak, I'd swear. Stark, man. Why, there isn't a glimmer of light. Take Bolingbroke, Alec. Give Jack the young mare. Look sharp. A large vessel lies jammed on the reef and many on board still, and some washed on shore. Ride straight with the news. They may send some relief from the township, and we, we can do little more. Now that is actually a poem by... Adam Lindsay Gordon, and you'd know who Adam Lindsay Gordon is, wouldn't you? I Jan? certainly do. Testing, testing your metal here. One of oh. Australia's earliest poets, and it's a poem that comes from the eight, um, well from 1859, and it was about the sailing ship or the wreck of the sailing ship Admella. The title of that poem was "From the Wreck," and uh, my guest today has written a book entitled "From the Wreck." My guest is Jane Rawson. So, Jane, welcome to 3CR. Hello. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm late. <laughs> Not a worry. You're here and you're ready to talk, which is absolutely wonderful. You have a personal connection with the Admella. I do. That's right. My great-great-grandfather, George Hills, was wrecked on the Admella. He was a steward on the ship, sort of like a trolley dolly on a plane today. He, he served the, all the cabins, the ladies' cabins in particular, and, yes, was wrecked in 1859 in August when the ship went down. But... It has a peculiar, well, peculiar history, a particular history. Uh, would you like to detail some of that for us? Yeah, the wreck was, it's seen as one of the worst in Australian shipping history because though the ship went down, bits of it were left and many, many people were trapped on it for eight days and nights just offshore. They were inside of the beach. People could see them, but the weather was so terrible. There was no way to get out there and save them. So they slowly died over the course of that week. And he was one of the 24 people who managed to survive till the end when finally a lifeboat could get to them. So they had to survive on board this wreck for eight days without food or water. That's what they reckoned. That's what they reckoned. Well, now... This sort of raises some interesting questions because you actually haven't written a history here. It's not about how they survived and things like that. It's more an exploration, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a sort of psychological and even metaphysical exploration <laughs> going on here. Yeah, I was really interested in what it would be like to have gone through a, such a traumatic experience as that in 1859, before you know, the, even the idea of psychology had been invented, let alone the idea that you could go and talk to someone about this trauma that you'd had. And knowing that also my relative was not a religious man, he was not that interested in church, and I know a lot of people would have turned to God in that kind of situation. So I, I wanted to explore what it might have been like to live a life after that in those circumstances. But yes, it got a little out of hand. <laughs> it got a little out of hand. Well, we have George Hills... Um, who is, uh, manages to survive, but here he is on the shipwreck. George had hauled himself over the broken bullocks, tearing his back to shreds, dodged between the hooves of the maddened racehorses stampeding about the deck, scrambled into the rigging of the mainmast where a phenomenal wave washed over the lines where he was clinging, and both he and the mast were swept into the ocean. He could still see, always somewhere behind his eyes, that monstrous wave rushing towards him, its foamy head hanging above him, then the blue-black-green crashing upon him, filling his lungs and mind with blank, white, drowning fear. So there he is on board the wreck. But 
he survives. And he survives with another individual. And this is where, um, had you arrived earlier, we might have been able to discuss just how much we were going to talk about Bridget Ledwith. Because I don't want to give too much away here, because that uh, almost metaphysical element is uh, imbued in the Bridget Ledwith character. Um, and Bridget and uh, George are together on the ship, comforting each other in some ways. And we get this sort of uh, image, of, and I don't think this is giving too much away, but then I'll ask you more about Bridget. It's written in the first person, which is, is interesting from Bridget's perspective. Each day the sun, that star, puts its dumb one face over one, two, three fewer. Each night we see those million billion other stars. I bathe in their hum and sing the song of my people. And again it drops frail into the sea, no other ears to hear. Then once more the sun, and again we are grown smaller. A few float without sinking, and others become food for those slippery bits of meat with teeth. This will be the last worldly place for these uprights, those scattered still around me, and I hold the one beside me and try to think him onward into peace. Small creature, I tell him, and I dream him a dream of the endless sky, the hum of the stars, a world all ocean, an eternity of dark. I dream him a dream and press the very edges of myself to his to bring him calm, but he stares still, lost and trapped in the shell of himself. Poor George. Poor George. <laughs> he won't go. But he becomes obsessed with Bridget. Now, what can you tell us about Bridget? In, Without... in real life, yes. in, in actual history, uh, Bridget Ledwith was the only woman who survived the wreck. But she had a kind of mysterious history after that. She disappeared. No one could find her. Everyone was very interested in her because, you know, she was the only woman survivor of this terrible wreck. And some years later, a woman wrote to the paper and said, I am she. I'm ready to speak again. And then someone else wrote to the paper and was like, no, you're not. I'm her. What are you talking about? So there was always some dispute over whether she might have died, whether she disappeared, whether she was one of these two women. It was never really completely clear. So... I wanted to pick that up um, and use her as a vehicle for this other character I wanted to introduce who is not from our world. She's from somewhere else. Well, she's from somewhere else. But what it does is it allows us to sort of explore a number of issues, a number of thematic concerns. So, for example, you've got this history. So there's the first aspect, the Anne Lindsay Gordon poem. And that's us. That's... That's you, as because it's a personal connection there. But there's Australia in many ways. And perhaps it's a, an image of Australia we haven't given much thought to. The fact that we're all boat people of one kind or another, but we won't go there. But, you know, how we got here and, and that sort of challenge of the sailing ship era. Then on board the ship, survival. Yep. And initially you sort of raise the notions of Darwinism. What are you doing? Um, well, I'm particularly interested, and it comes up quite a lot through the book, in our attitude towards other species, uh, our, our very self-centeredness about ourself and our unwillingness to think about what the way we live does to other species that live on the earth that we share, um, that we share with them. So 1859 also was a pretty pivotal time in the history of evolution. Charles Darwin was putting his work out at that point. So 
it was a time when we were starting to shift how we saw our way in the world. But I think even now, you know, 150, 170 years later, we're still pretty stuck in that idea that humans are first, foremost, most important, different to animals. It doesn't really matter what we do to them. We have dominion. We have dominion. Mm. We, we really can't let go of that idea. So I wanted to explore that in some but way as well. But we are very fallible. Yeah. Uh, and this novel sort of exposes some of that fallibility because George, um, well, in some ways, loses his mind mm. because he is obsessed with finding um, Bridget Ledwith. And he, he comes across all of these false characters because, if you, we go back to one of those readings I did earlier, Bridget has comforted him in some ways. And this affects his marriage to Eliza. Yeah, he has his feelings about Bridget are very uncomfortable, um, partly because he's been in the Victorian era in a very physically close relationship with this other woman. Um, it, in all likelihood, everyone was pretty much naked on the mm. ship by this time. And we know that George was left just with a shoe and a belt after he was, fell off the wreck and was dragged back on. So, you know, it's the middle of winter. They're freezing cold. They're all clustered together nude. Um but so that's back... awkward, but also there was the awkwardness of him feeling her uncanniness the whole time. Yes, yeah. she, she has a, well, a, a sort of supernatural uh, element to her, which uh, George can't reconcile yeah. uh, for himself. But that's an interesting thread to follow. But you then, they're surviving, so they're breaking the moors of the time, naked, huddling together for warmth. Because survival is necessary. Darwinism and these sorts of things. Yep. Another interesting aspect. The book also goes into the next generation, George's son, Henry. When you were wrecked, Henry asked, what did you eat? Oh, we didn't eat, his father told him. There was nothing to eat. Why didn't you eat the creatures in the sea, Henry asked. What creatures? The fish. How would we have caught them? His father took his hand and steered him through the traffic towards the crowd forming at the gates of Glanville Estate. With our hands? Yes, with your hands. You would have reached into the ocean and grasped them as they fled slippery by. Henry, a man can't catch a fish with his bare hands. You need a rod or a reel, a hook at the very least. We had none of those. Which raises the question of what did they eat? What did they eat? <laughs> what did they eat? Um, one of the few major resources there is on the Ad Mallor is a book by Ian Moody called... Um, the wreck of the Admala. And he intimates fairly strongly that they were cannibals. Uh, but there is, there's no solid evidence to suggest one way or the other. But I think all of us thinking, what would you eat? Hmm. Well, there were a lot of dead people lying around. There were dead horses as well. There were also there dead, dead horses. horses. There were dead horses. So, you know, there were, there were things. But it raises... Who knows? Yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. And, and the speculation is there. But it's this obsession and there's a sort of legacy that's then passed on uh, from George to his son, Henry, which is another dimension within the book um, because there, there are other children as well. Um, and Henry is touched, shall we say? Is there a better word? I'm not too sure if there <laughs> that's is. That's a good start. That's a good start <laughs> yeah. with that legacy of George's obsession, shall we say. But... It comes to life uh, when uh, Georgie, Henry's younger brother, loses his life. Had he done the wrong thing? Um, or had he done anything wrong? He didn't know. 
He had sent Georgie for the weapons. Georgie wanted to hunt the tramp. He wanted to. Yes, it had been Henry's idea, but Henry had been ready to give up, and it was Georgie who wanted to get the treasure. But Henry should have known better. Isn't that what Mother was always telling him? That he was almost grown up now and he should know better? How do you learn how to know better? Henry just did things that were good ideas. Where do the better ideas come from? Were they meant to come from God or something? Then why didn't God ever give them to him? He would like to know better if only someone would help him. <laughs> so he's uh, not implicated. He's never accused, but he carries this guilt he with him. He does carry a lot of guilt with him, a lot of which I guess is because his father is very suspicious of him his whole life from when he's a small child. He feels like he's carrying something of, of his uncanny experience on the wreck with him, that there's something a little off about him. Well, there's a physical manifestation. Of there that. is, yeah. And therefore that taints the rest of his life and yeah. how his father treats him. Yes, yeah. But what are you therefore implying or saying about the legacy we carry down through the ages? I think some of it was was just about that simple question of how difficult it can be simple <laughs> for for parents to accept children who are different to them, who are strange, who don't align with the way they expect their children to be, and trying to work through that and just love them for who they are rather than who it was you had hoped they would be when they were born as this little child. Well, society has social uh, mores um, and strictures um, that you know, they want everyone to live up to, yeah. sort of thing. But at the same time, society is changing as well. Yeah, yeah, and often, you know, you've, you're you're not quite ready to go there, and your children are, and mm. and you have to deal with that. But then, you're sort of looking at the forces that, um, how shall we say, shape the way we live our lives, and some of these forces are beyond the real. Yes. <laughs> Would you like yes. to develop that further? <laughs> um, I I guess my feeling is in all my writing and generally in my life that while I'm not a religious person or even a particularly spiritual person, I feel like there is so much in the world that is so interesting and strange and that we might look at as not real, but often is real. I mean, just even looking at an octopus and how an octopus functions, which is relevant to my book. Um, the octopuses are so strange and so different to us. And yet we kind of just think that our way of thinking about things is the only way to do things. So I kind of want to write things that open us up a little bit more to seeing other ways of living and thinking the weirdness of the world that's around us and to enjoy that and revel in it rather than being afraid of it. There are more things in heaven and earth than exactly. ratio than <laughs> yep. your philosophy. Yeah. Yes. So that is, and in many ways, it's open-ended in terms of that uh, idea of what is shaping us and it's imbued in Bridget, Led, Bridget Ledwith character, who historically has remained uh, a mystery. An enigma. An enigma, a very <laughs> yep. good word. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to bring the conversation to a close there. It's been fascinating. The book is From the Wreck, and the author, Jane Rawson, and it's a Transit Lounge publication. That's right. Thanks for taking the time to get in here. No worries. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jane. And 